out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Greg Roberts, a drummer, percussionist and a band leader who was originally in, well, quite a lot of bands that you probably haven't heard of, but then was in Big Audio Dynamite throughout the... 80s and appeared on four of their albums, began Screaming Target and then Dreadzone and has been in that band ever since and started a record label and much more but you're going to learn all about that in this interview so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Greg, it's over to you. Well um, I'm sort of a generation earlier because I was born in the 50s yeah, even though you meant to say, well, you don't look it, but uh, yeah, because I'm in my 60s now. So, um, so my first awake musical awakening would have, would have been The Who, really. Um, I mean, obviously, having an older brother who was into Elvis Presley, I heard Jailhouse Rock, that was one of the first things I heard. But I'd say my musical awakening was The Who, um, and I bought Pinball Wizard was my first single. And obviously, because of Keith Moon being like a lead drummer in The Who. And I saw them when I was 15. So, so and then my first album was um, Led Zeppelin 1. Right. So, so I started off with rock, with rock, obviously. You know, it, when I got into Led Zeppelin, I was 12. So it's, you know, it's like a whole lot of love and stuff like that. It's 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 uh, coinciding with my kind of like youthful sexual awakening. You know, I found something like Led Zeppelin very sexual. There was something very, uh, you know, got my teen teen spirit going. Yes, absolutely. That, that would have been very exciting. And having an older brother or sister or some friend can be a huge influence. My brother was seven years older than me. This was in the 70s. He was into prog rock, which was a bit unfortunate because then it meant that I got obsessed with yes Genesis Wishbone Ash Barker James Harvest all those classics that you just think oh yeah. thank you thank you Colin for giving me those um but he did like Deep Purple and Black Sabbath so there was those kind of records that I would sneak into his room to listen to so um it does help just give you another kind of story to a well that was an dream. older older brother with it who liked the Elvis and you know I uh, just was probably that's one of the first musical memories hearing bam bam the opening of Jailhouse Rock but I had another older uh, other brother who's like close who's passed away now three and a half years older than me Steve he came in and put headphones on me when I when I was lying in my bed woken up one morning with dark side of the moon on which sort of was a wonderful experience you know but I didn't I kind of didn't I kind of avoided the the prog thing really I suppose even though I love that album so and then I used to go to the youth club so like the, the whole glam thing uh, obviously you know like you say David Bowie Sweet and Slade that would have fired up my imagination and that was kind of like the same, you know, the youth club years. And then as David Bowie went into, moved into soul and funk, we were sort of like moved over. I had some black friends who introduced me to James Brown. So I kind of went from David Bowie and sort of glam rock into discovering funk and, you know, James Brown and dancing. 
really. Yes. So they kind of balanced out, you know, those, those the kind of rock and roll and the dance element sort of like balanced out as I was growing up. So it's, it had quite an effect on my formative years, I guess. And did, and did you follow your, you know, Keith Moon obsession through Tommy and, um, you know, Quadrophenia and Who's Next? Was that, was that well, still on? I think when I bought my first single, I bought was Pinball Wizard. There was something about the, you know, the sort of frantic acoustic guitar and the crashing in of the drums and the bass. But then when I tried to listen to Tommy, I, it didn't really connect with me at the time. So I went back and explored all the singles. So I had I bought My Generation and Can't Explain and I Can See for Miles, you know, Happy Jack. Yes. They were on three different labels. I always remember that. I had the seven inches. So I, I like the short, sharp sort of shock of the singles more than sort of the album experiments. I'm not, I don't really know too much apart about Tommy. Um, apart from See Me, Feel Me, you know, that period when I saw them. I saw them at Dunstable Civic Hall. I was 15 at the time, so that would have been... Um, 1972 and there was Townsend in his white yes. and Roger Daltrey with the fringed thing swinging the microphone and Keith Moon and so I was kind of obsessed with the Who you know and especially like looking at magazines and going oh I'd love to meet these guys they're, they're really amazing so and it was all tied in with uh, the fashions at the time as well and I, I think that's what going to the youth club and hanging out with black friends and getting into uh, tonic suits and crombies and the whole sort of suede head sort of. So it was a mission mash, you know, but I feel like music and clothes and fashion all sort of went in hand in hand. So Yes. And did you and did you keep your John Bonham obsession through Led Zeppelin up to at least Led Zeppelin 4 with Stairway to Heaven and Sandy Denny? I suppose, yeah, I would know. I, I mean, if, if you were to ask me now, because I had constant debates in my head about who, you know, like Keith Moon was brilliant in a frantic kind of like leading the group. They always let him lead, you know. But there's something about John Bonham that I, I, I kind of place him above everybody else, really, in terms of feel, sound, power, uh, originality, uh, you know, and just when you watch... Led Zeppelin or you know listen to them how they sounded in 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 those days it was it was just like unbelievable power you know I I worked when I was about 15 I worked no I was 14 I think I worked as a Saturday boy in my dad's shop in Watford and I used to go into the record shop next door and they had listening booths no oh, yes. if you wanted to listen to a record they'd put it on and you go into a listening booth and I remember every weekend I'm going, can you put a whole lot of love on, please? You know, and I was I was I was obsessed with that sound and and you know, there's something something about it. Yes. And then years later, did you get into people like Hunt Sells, who was in, you know, did the um Lust for Life stuff with Iggy Pop with that kind of a great drumming percussion intro and and then sort of people like Dennis, was it Dennis Davis who worked with David Bowie on Low yeah, and so Dennis Davis, yeah. But I hunt, you know, these other drummers. I think what it was uh, as a drummer, obviously starting out as a drummer, I was I was uh, into the 
but then I sort of like would would like the songs and everything about the band. So not necessarily. I wasn't obsessed with drummers. No. When did the, why the drum kit? By the way, because it's not one of those instruments parents normally go. Oh, I know that's a good idea. Let's get a drum kit. Oh my god. <laughs> um, I don't know why. Maybe um, I should know why because I am sort of like trying to write my book. So when I went to a school in Ryslip, they had a music room, and in the music room there was another little cupboard that had a drum kit in it and there was me and another kid used to play on it and, and there was something about a drum kit and the way it sounded the way it looked you know I, I and I picked it up quite easily and I felt that I mean I did I was kind of uh, I asked my parents about getting me a drum kit and we're not, we're not getting you a drum kit so they bought me a guitar so I used to pose in my bedroom and pretend I was Pete Townsend playing along with the Who and then smash the guitar up and then my brother found the guitar and he fixed it up and he started playing guitar and he bought me some like Salvation Army drums and we'd set up in the shed and we used to, that's how I kind of started my musical career really is having a brother who was into music as well, Steve. We were only three and a half years apart and we were very close. Yes. So we would take our instruments out into, you know, some kind of area and just could be the shed, it could be somewhere down the road. And just set up and play and he'd play and I play drums. So and then that kind of morphed into when he got married, we he he lived in Bedford and he had a basement and I used to travel over and we used to we that's where we started our first band playing yes. at the time because I was really into I'd really sort of taken the James Brown funk thing a lot further and got into dancing and early soul boy sort of stuff. And going to clubs and dancing so our first music that we played together as a band properly sort of this is like my teens i'm getting older would have been funk stuff and covers uh cover versions of lots of different things why did you do it by stretch pick up the pieces those kind of you know white boy funk so yeah so even though I had a, that that burst of rock and roll to kick me off, uh, when I started playing, it was reflecting what I was going out to clubs and dancing to was sort of American import, yes, funk music. Did you get through? Did you go into the northern soul phase oh, as well, no. or mostly was? No. Um, what about sort of there was a rivalry between north and south? We used to, you know, they used, they hated it. We had our funk scene, which in, in all these different clubs, lazy ladies. Scamps in Hemel Hempstead used to drive up to London and, and visit these places and see these guys dancing. And it was, you know, it was really, uh, it was a good scene. So that kind of, that channeled into what we were playing. So, no, not Northern Soul. No. What about, what about Motown? Did Motown creep into your, your sort of narrative? Yeah, Motown was part of, you know, part of growing up, you know. Um, they were just, that's the thing about Northern Soul. It's kind of, I, I, I agree with that kind of, you know, there are a lot of people who are obsessed with Northern Soul, but it's just like Motown B-sides. <laughs> really, because they were, and the more obscure they are, the more they're popular are they with people. But I think 
obscurity doesn't necessarily make the best tunes so no but it's um it gives you a hobby doesn't it really i do remember sort of watching an amazing documentary on barry white recently and and then remembering that kind of world that i've seen a lot of you know my obsession with david bowie and his period of young americans where he goes he gets into philly soul music and he has this incredible band featuring people like luther vandross and then ava cherry was there and just has this incredible cast doesn't he of people like um yeah uh carlos alamo appears and then then sort of you get chic chic and studio 54 comes up a bit later yeah. doesn't it so did you come into that disco world and 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 sort of we kind started... of did yeah we were we were into the dancing thing that's why i say i must stress that that thing that just happened to coincide it was like bowie was reading where that where everything was going like we sort of moved from glam kind of into the soul thing so um yeah i uh what was the question again um it was about sort of about chic about yes chic. the chic yeah, studio yes, sorry, yes that's the one absolutely so we were we were going to clubs and we were dancing to a lot of this music and we were really into it and you know you all these different acts and then when saturday night fever came along the whole disco thing exploded and it got uh, too too commercial and so many people were kind of jumping on that bandwagon but i i kind of liked certain bits of disco but it's obviously simplified the beat a lot more four on the floor and, and the open hats and but, yes uh, yeah we're, we're much more in tune with funk i think as as my playing progressed and then we would still listen to funk, I sort of got more obsessed with the uh, jazz funk, really, because as musicians, you know, you used to get stoned and listen to Weather Report and and, and the, all those kind of things, you know, like and, and we'd sort of like go off into jazz rock, jazz funk, the CTI label, all that stuff coming from America and I would sort of be obsessed, a bit more obsessed with particular drummers like Steve Gadd and Harvey Mason, David Gary Baldy, Tower Power. Well, Tony, what was Tony Thompson? Was he the chic drummer, wasn't he? Tony Thompson was a chic drummer. He's, he was great, yeah. He was really solid. Everybody dance. I remember all those tunes. And what about George Clinton and Funkadelic and, um, yep. and that kind of... Connection. I've still got all that vinyl, really. I've, like... Back in the day, I used to go out and buy a lot of uh, vinyl. So, yeah, we were at war. Um, I used to drive up to, you know, because I lived in Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire. So this is before I moved back to London. Uh, but I passed my test quite early and, and we used to drive up to London and have the cassettes of all this different type of music playing in the car. So... And did you leave school at 16 and or did you stay on and sort of... Um... I left school at 15. This was back in the day. The, the, they, it went up to 16 the next year, but I was able to leave school. I was given the option. I did want to stay on and, and study to be like writing and, and to maybe be a journalist. That's the only thing that really interested me. But my, my dad ran a clothes shop in Watford. Right. And uh, it's... And I was already working there in uh, as a Saturday boy and then more and more. And, and then I sort of left school so I could go out and earn money and, and buy clothes and, you know, 
meet girls and have a job. Have a you job. Know, was it? Was it? Was his? Was his shop a particular fashion one? I know. I saw a bit of a documentary on this guy called John. Was it John Simons that all these people like Paul Weller and Richard Ems and all those cats love to kind of name drop and go to a bit of a preppy look? Was he? Did he have sharp sharp suits from Italy? And um, you know, no, no, no. Uh, I worked. My dad was a manager of a shop called Meekers of Piccadilly. They don't exist anymore. They're like Burtons. They were very sort of kind of middle of the road they did yes. try to get a bit trendy with paisley shirts and stuff like that but there were other shops along Watford high street that i used to go and buy clothes from um can't remember any of the names now they, they probably would come back to me and what 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 was your relationship with the punk movement because you i was too young for punk but you would have been at quite a good age for it and then there was obviously vivian westwood and malcolm mclaren and all this kind oh. of new I, it kind of missed me. It missed me out because I was playing in a band. We were based. My brother lived in Bedford. Um, we were based in Bedfordshire. If I'd have lived in London, I mean, it might have been very different. Because since knowing Don Letts and Leo, they were both sort of into that soul and funk scene. And then when punk hit, it was like a cultural change. Everybody and you know, they started going to punk clubs more and. I used to come up to clubs uh, like Shagaramas, which was like a black black music, gay club. And um, all of a sudden that became something else, became a punk club. I think the Roxy, actually. And uh, so the punk thing, I always think I was, I'm very conscious of that. It, it really passed me by. I was not interested at all. No, I no. One of my first attempts at writing a song was sort of an ant anti-punk song really no yeah. did you go no. to places did you go to clubs like was it the sombrero club which yeah i remember going to the sombrero crackers uh sunday lunchtime sessions i'm very much obsessed with the dancing and the, and the the kind of the dance music and the funk and like i say i got sort of obsessed more with drummers and funk and jazz funk so all that whole punk thing passed me by so when yes. i came to actually event eventually came to meet Mick Jones, which I'm sure you will refer to <laughs> later on. I that was I could groove, you know, I'm mean, I'd be play I know I had to play grooves, which is what Mick was looking for, really, rather than just like all like clash fans like turning up. So yeah, going back to that period, punk meant uh, didn't mean a thing to me, really. No. And then sort of as the 80s kind of, you know, wombled, wombled in, you know, with sort of Thatcher and the the uh, the Falkland War, the, the minus cry, you know, the minus crisis. And then sort of we had, you know, Greenham Common and sort of potentially nuclear war on our doorstep. Then musically things changed. You had the Blitz kids and that new romantic scene, didn't you? And then then there was Robin Miller with his kind of production sound and then Sade in that kind of smooth groove with people like Simply Red. What was your early 80s like at this stage? Um, well, actually, at the turn of 1980, I decided, because I was originally born in London. You know, we I lived in, I was born in um, Islington and we lived in Kentish Town. My father was managing the same uh, shop makers so he moved to different branches so he was managing the what for one and we were living in Leighton buzzard so when i as soon as the opportunity came i thought i need to 
because we'd already started trying to do a band, like I told you, with, with my brother. But it kind of, we went out on the road and we were touring, but it kind of all fell apart. And I realized I need to go out and earn some money. And I got, when I came up and had some interviews and I got a job in the King's Road working for Cecil G. Just at the turn of 19, uh, the 80s, just before 1979. So I would travel up, I would commute up from Leighton Buzzard to the King's Road. And, and then I eventually got a flat with somebody and then I moved back to London. So, and then I started playing drums again when I had sort of opportunity to get a drum kit again. And I was on the fringes. I started to go to auditions the early 80s. I started playing with as many different people, trying to meet as many different musicians in London as, as I could possibly really. So there was all just the fringe, you know, I'd buy the Melody Maker and the Enemy every week and then look at the back of the Melody Maker for adverts and and see what what see what was going on. And I, I was I was aware of all the sort of like that Billy's scene because there was very much a funk undertow in the clubs, you know, there was yes. very much. So I went for a few auditions. I went to audition with Haircut 100. Classic. <laughs> in Nomis Studios in 1982, I think it was. And I think, it, my, in my memory, because I'm friends with a couple of those guys on Facebook now, and I've met Nick Hayward before, but I, my memory is that they offered me the job, but I kind of turned it down because they wanted me to sign some contract. Next thing you know, they're on top of the pops. I'm like, oh, okay. So, and then I kept going to auditions and, and working with different people just to build up the confidence and and get used to being in situations. I auditioned with Mick Kahn. Oh, God, the coolest coach, man, coach the man. coolest bass player ever. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was good. And I, I played um, I played with uh, Gino Washington. Love Gino. We used to go and see Gino as much, Gino as, much as possible. He was absolutely... Yeah, yeah. So he had that kind of tight soul thing. And that was great to get your chops going. And then... Um, Offered all different kinds of jobs, and I got the opportunity to go and play uh, and record an album in Venezuela with uh, a Venezuelan sort of artist who was looking for, like, he came over to England to get some uh, musicians, like a drum, bass, and guitar, keyboards, who, who could sort of play reggae and funk and, you know, try and get that kind of police sound. So, yes. So I went to Venezuela. And while I was there, that was like 1983, I spent quite a few months there because they invited me back to help mix the album. And while I was there, I was like, mm, when I come back to England, I got a feeling that something's going to happen. So I came back. I had nothing. I moved in with my brother. And I put an advert in the Melody Maker. And then the same week my advert was in, there was an advert from uh, for this band. I've still got the advert. I've still got the advert. I, I posted it on Facebook a few times. Yes. And uh, it was for Mick, Mick Jones's new band. It didn't say Mick Jones. It just said, you know, no time wasters, got to be sharp, look good, play well, you know. And I uh, went along to this uh, big warehouse in uh, Freston Road, West 10. And uh, I auditioned. And then I was asked back a couple more times and then um, he took me on and another drummer and then um, sacked the other drummer 
in front of me and then said, look, right, okay, you got the job. And that's 1984. So yeah, my early 80s were like, I'd say I know this because I'm, um, I mean, obviously, you know, I've got quite a good memory, but um, I'm trying to write my own sort of memoirs or, you know, try and piece it together what happened. So, you know, apart from being diligent in sort of like just keeping up, trying to meet as many people. Yes. Try and play well, try and, you know, be a good person. There's all, there's some, some moments where you go like, how did that happen? What if I'd have missed that? You know what I mean? What if they'd have, because the, the third time I rang back for, for, for the Mick Jones thing, there was this guy answered the phone. He was the sax. He was a sax player that was playing with them at the time. And he went, no, no, you haven't, you haven't got the job. And then, because uh, I only had a pager in those days, you know, you, you yes. used to find, try and get hold of you. And I had this pager and it was like, no, you come along for another audition. So, so My yeah, God. some opportunities that uh, just ha everything fell into the right place. But I think you can often feel like looking back on my life, you have to create your own destiny. You have to will your sort of what you want to happen into being. And and it's always been that way, you know. So. Yes. Well, I, th I think from speaking to quite a lot of musicians, I think one of the things that people are amazed about that something did happen when it happened back in that period, but realise you had to put a lot out there, probably had 90% of it was a bit of a waste of time, met lots of people, but one little thing does happen and you get that kind of green light and it then moves on to the next stage and realise, and as you get older, you're sitting there and you get these offers and, you know, do you want to meet up for this? Do you want to do this? And you think, no, I don't want to do any of that. And you're probably, you know, out of all those kind of, you know, things, I can't do that. One of them might have been good, but you don't know which one, do you? But you, you're not, as you get older, always prepared to say yes and go and meet and, you know, spend an afternoon sort of, you know, not messing about, but, you know, sometimes feeling like that was a bit of a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to put in the legwork. You've got to put, get out there and meet people. And it was different in those days. Well, obviously, it's, it, you know, nowadays it's, it's kind of people are consumed with, their gadgets and their their um, devices and the internet and uh, I don't know if it's would be the same but um, yeah those those chances happen just because of uh, yeah meeting the right people and making the right decisions really I could have been in haircut one hundred maybe yes and, fan fantastic and, and day gone back on the doll so. It was good. But then, yeah, because the 80s, you know, it was an interesting period during that that kind of, you know, there was that there was that production sound, the Trevor Horn production world of, you know, ABC and Frankie. And then there was, you know, people like, you know, Spandau Bally and Duran Duran and Phil Collins, Simply Red. So there was these mega smooth grooves, you know, this kind of, was it some, some sort of, I don't know, was it gated sort of reverb or something that people oh, used? Yeah, I mean... I I started to take an interest in more in the, in how a record sounded, which coincided with me. I had a Walkman, you know, that back in the days when you had a Walkman and, and yes. And like I say, the, when I went to Venezuela to do this album, I came back to London. They invited me to come back, so to help mix. Not that I could mix. I didn't even know what I was doing, but I had made some suggestions. 
production-wise that obviously the artists liked. So I remember listening to Michael Jackson's thriller, like non-stop, and um, Yes album with Owner of a Lonely Heart, which was Trevor Horn's Buggles. And to me, the Owner of a Lonely Heart with the there's these that's the first time I ever heard samples used in a per, particular way because it had boom this drum break, which was like, where is that from? You know, but the, the actual Trevor Horn, Steve Lipson, that production team at, at, at ZTT was just amazing. So I was, it start, I started to get fascinated by um, production. Obviously that did stem from like, I was a big fan of Steely Dan as well. Asia was one of my most played albums, but. Oh. Yes, I, I I loved Katie Lyde. I thought it was always a, got some kind of good memories about stealing down and Katie Lyde. Yeah, so. stealing down with our sound man. We're we're always arguing because he likes early Steely Dan. I was and he was like, nah, and all that jazzy stuff. And well, but to me, Asia is just like, and also it has the the best drum performance from Steve Gadd on it on the title track and Wayne Shorter from Weather Report. And- oh, yes, we love Wayne. But then during that period, and as I was kind of searching through my gig tickets and came across Big Audio Dynamite, I did notice a lot of gigs for um, Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang. Can you, could you, did you become fascinated with the world of reggae? And and I know Sly Absolutely. and Robbie. I'm glad you reminded me. Yeah, so, so pre-BAD, sorry, yeah, we've got me playing with lots of different things and i've said gino but one thing i did miss out was myself and my brother uh, heard about this opportunity to go and audition with this band in brixton called red cloud um and they had this singer floyd lloyd so this is like 1982 so we went over and we auditioned and i learned how to play reggae and they liked us and they asked me to join even though i didn't really properly know how to do the one drop so we used to sit in this studio in Brixton and we had two guys there, an old percussionist called Bongo and a sax player called Chemist. They were both in their 60s and they used to like and show me where the three was, which is essential. I don't know why I missed this out before, but this is essential for how my playing developed because learning where the three was after playing so many years of just two and four, the backbeat with funk, to learning how to do the one drop and turn the beat around. So that reggae, that's where I started to take a lot more interest in reggae. And we play, I played, I was with this band six, uh, for six months. We used, um, we would, we were in Brixton at the time of the riots as well. So, so I played in a reggae band, then I went off to join a, a more expen- experimental reggae band called the Creamies. So that's where I got my reggae chops from. And so obviously, yeah, Sly, Sly and Robbie, he came to my attention where, where there was a tune, I think it's the Viceroy's, called Heart Made of Stone. Right. It's got this amazing syncopated drums on it. And I was like, who's that? And it's Sly and Robbie. And then we used to listen to Black Who. It was like, oh, it's Sly and Robbie. Nearly every reggae record I was listening to was, was Sly and Robbie. So um, I would put in, Dan, if I had, you know, top five influential drummers in my life, like with Steve Gadd, John Bonham, 
I would definitely put slide and bar. Yes. And there was also those um, electronic kind of pads, yeah, the weren't there, which, which were always very thrilling at a live gig. They always seemed to kind of create a bit of tension and excitement at all those kind of moments, really. Yeah, I had, uh, I think um, Mick bought me some Simmons drums when I joined Bad. So I always had the, you know, they were a bastard to program, though. You know, you used to get like, trying to get the right sound out the doof, doof, doof. so uh yeah there was that was sort of like early part of like learning about electronics with um with the drumming yes and at that so, stage yeah, I... all that, so all that amalgamation of being in venezuela learning you know getting into salsa rhythms as well and then reggae and funk and disco uh, and then by the time i came to meet Mick Jones, I could play all these different kind of, I could turn the beat around, I could, you know, groove really nicely. And, you know, I give I give thanks that I got the opportunity because it was, if it wasn't for, because when they started, they started a year earlier and they were called something else, Track. And it was uh, Mick and Topper and Leo was playing bass with them. So, it was, and then Topper couldn't, Topper was, you know, well uh, into his uh, smack period. So it's very sad that they couldn't, you know, that's why they had to look for somebody different to play drums. So it was that, you know, that sad, it's very sad, but that was brought up the opportunity of, uh, and Leo the Dread, you know, I, I, I kind of locked him with him straight away. So Leo was like, yeah, we like this man. And because I'd, you know, I've been I've been in reggae bands, I was able to know at the audition there, yeah, Irie man. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I was, uh, yeah, also, you know, I was, uh, I was easy to get on with, you know what I mean? I wasn't like, I knew my place, so it was nice to to join and just sort of learn from all the people around me. So, so had know, the had the musical ideas of Big Audio Dynamite already been formed? before you joined or did you help sort of create the sound for that first album? Um, I would, I'd helped create certain things. I wouldn't, you know, they had a bunch of demos, which um, none of them sort of, there was probably one or two that sort of made, developed into other ideas that made it onto the first album. But my, one of my most distinct memories that when I first joined, Mick lived in uh, by Port Bella Road in Colville Square, and we used to go to his flat and sit down. He had a little music room, and he put together this track, which had like huge chunks of uh, the spaghetti western stuff, you know, the speech from Clint Eastwood. And so, and so a lot of those ideas developed from Mick, but then obviously us playing a lot together helped him formulate but it 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 took a while for us to find what we were going to do even though I joined in April 94 and then when Don joined it wasn't until much later you know we'd all we went on tour we went and did some festival um, some shows with U2 in late 84 and our first two live shows in the UK was in 84 as well but then we went back to the drawing board and Mick had bought a house in Holland Park and we started to write more stuff so it came together so um, my contribution is 
yeah, a lot of the programming on the, we had a Lin 1, we had a Lin 2 um, drum machine. I used to go, when Mick bought a new house in Holland Park, when he was going to move out of his flat, he hadn't quite moved out. So he gave me the keys and it had all the studios set up in the basement. It had a, a eight track recorder, a keyboard, a little sampler and, and drum machine. And that's why I, I used to go in there like at night and then stay there all night like smoking spliffs and then come out in the morning with a cassette with this mad little thing that I created. And it was like the most exciting thing because I've managed to create, create something. It was on an eight track, which gives you a kind of discipline compared yes. to what you've got now because you, you lay stuff down on the eight track. You have to stick to that arrangement. But it's where I learned to sort of like, oh, I can play a bass line here. So there was a couple of ideas that I came up with that made it onto the first album. And I've got a tiny bit of writing on the first album. But it, yeah, a lot of it came from Mick, obviously with Don as well, with Lyrically. Um, and then Dan joined after a while um, to add the keyboards. So it was it was a group effort, but obviously guided by Mick. And Mick was the main man, the producer, and you know he he knew he had his vision as what he wanted to do. Yes, and I, I was. I mean, and he took me on to be the drummer. And to be fair, he wasn't to know whether I could handle a drum machine or or make it, you know, do exciting things, but. Then I used to take it back home to my flat, which I share with my brother. And I used to learn and we used to do, we even tried doing a cover version of Expansions, which is a jazz function. So I'm learning how to program <coughs> the limb one and I'm getting to know it and I'm using drum machines more. So yeah, it was a steep learning curve, but I'm glad I was able to do it rather than go, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a drummer. I don't need to. Yes. The second... I, always felt, I always felt that because I couldn't attain that kind of level of drum musicianship that people that I admired, like Steve Gadd and, you know, the top session players, that I, I knew that I could probably excel in other areas or sort of learn how to use technology, which is, you know, in terms of having a career in music is the most important thing for me because I was able to master some technology and write my, start writing my own stuff. Yes. And you had sort of Adrian Sherwood and the On You Sound System, which was also using interest in rhythms and percussion and sort of, you know, butt-ups from, you know, either crowds or sort of chanting from the terraces or sort of Thatcher. So there was that, you know, that that sort of style started to happen a bit more in the 80s. I mean, when you brought the second album out, Number 10, Up In Street, that that's that roars into being with Come On Every Beatbox, which is an enormous song. But there's also a fascinating one talking of percussion and drumming, which is the last track on side two, which is Sight C M C, isn't it? That that's quite a wild bit of drumming on that. Yeah, that's that's the drum machine again. That's the DMX I was using, but also there's a lot of live percussion that I overlaid on it. Um, it is a mad track. I have to say it, and for me, probably some people don't know about this, doesn't matter if they do, is that with Come On Every Beatbox, 
we took the album, the, a lot of the tracks that we recorded in Trident in Soho, we took them to America for six weeks to start mixing stuff, and some stuff didn't sound right. So Come On Every Beatbox was, there was friends of friends, knew, knew this guy, Sam Sever, who was a uh, kind of a hip hop producer, programmer. And he came in and he programmed, I'll never forget it because I was in the studio and I was watching, he came in and programmed the 808 and the 909, like early in the morning, like smoking these neat, like ganja spliffs. And I'm like, how is he doing this? He was only about 18. And they sounded great. The beats sounded great. And that was a lesson to me. There's, you know, the, the, Somebody could come, obviously, you know, it's going to feel a bit daunting and you feel a bit put out or, you know, but I learned from that. I learned, I said to Mick, you know, I could be your own little Sam Sever. You know, <laughs> he did that and another track. Um, Obviously, I, you know, I did stuff like Site CMC, which is, yeah, it's got a kind of, remember, it's a DMX machine on that. So when it comes to live drums, there's not a lot of live drums on BAD stuff. There's a lot of programmed stuff what what was what was great about that second album was it just seemed to sort of flow really nicely the 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 track listing and it does have a you know a good kind of narrative and it's it's not a concept album but i do remember a lot of fond memories playing you know playing it back and forth and enjoying you know dial a hitman you know beyond the pearl you know but obviously come on every beatbox is such an enormous song to start with yeah, it's a great song. They used to be great live as well. Obviously, it's got that kind of <coughs> Eddie Cochran kind of 50s element mashed up with like the most sort of advanced technology. So uh, that, that was always a favourite live. And um, yeah, it was all a bit of a blur, really. Once once we all started, you know, and the album came out and it did really well and Equals MC Squared did well and we made the videos and went on tour and we went to America and it was just like all sort of like rolling along and picking up pace and we were able to expand our ideas a bit more and get more involved in the writing hence you know there's a lot more writing on the third and fourth album for all of us yes how did you cope as the 80s trucked on and we suddenly entered that kind of more rave world with ecstasy and sort of the Chicago house sound and acid jazz and um, acid, just acid um, rave music and stuff like that? What was that like for the band? Because a lot of times I've spoke to people and they said, well, you know, so-and-so started taking ecstasy, that's slightly through the band. And I know Hawkwind always had that problem where several members did one drug and the other members did the other drug, and it, it was always going to create a lot of tension. What was it like for the band at that stage? Uh, it was good. I think Mick got really excited by the whole rave thing and then wanted to co-opt it for the for the, for the the last album, Megatop Phoenix. Obviously, you know, I mean, I think I took X, my first ecstasy was in 1986. You know, and we'd take we'd have it in America if we're going to the clubs in New York and stuff like that. And while we were set while we were set up doing um, the mixing the second album in New York, while they were busy working on the tracks, I went to see Prince at Madison Square Gardens, and I and I had some ecstasy, and and it was quite. So it, it opened up my mind the same way as uh, marijuana opened up my mind. You know, I I've been lucky enough to not get bogged down with the wrong drugs really i mean it's 
it's it's you know a bit of ecstasy now and then is is good we always used to say you know it's like a, a drug for christmas you don't do it all year round it's like um so in terms of creativity uh i don't know um it kind of opened up that acid house thing for a channel that we could go down but i think mick was more enthusiastic about it than than others were we used to go to a lot of clubs and parties and and get involved in that and a lot of overspill from a lot of those people that would come to our shows and i suppose it had a it had an effect on us but we never really changed that much the same way as like ecstasy had an effect on people like happy mondays and, and stone roses but they still were kind of rock and roll sort of bands really in a way um but uh i to be honest with you i was a bit skeptical about just suddenly jumping on the bandwagon whereas um you know there was we were taking a lot from dance music anyway and we were making dance music i i just think that for me like when i'd already when i left and in the early 90s that's when it got more interesting when more bands were coming out you know renegade soundwave and leftfield and underworld and prodigy and a lot more bands were making that kind of music and that had a more of an influence on me than than just at the tail end of BAD suddenly going like, oh, look, I see it. <laughs> I used yes. to know that guy. We used to go down to that club. He ran a club night, Gary Hazeman. Oh, no, Paul Dennis and his friend Gary Hazeman. He used to be down there at Legends. And they were, I see it. There was a crossover there, but I wouldn't say it was like massively. Yes. I know. I know. And I suppose it was around that same time that New Order brought out Technique, which was kind of their big moment, wasn't it? That was the album that sort of kind of gave them. I think they'd seen Arthur Baker or sort of had an Arthur Baker remix and that had slightly galvanised their dance dance kind of path in a way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we, we got to know Arthur Baker and... Um... Yeah, those it was fun making those albums and being in America, you know, like you say, Dial a Hitman and having having uh, Matt Dillon and Lawrence Fishburne in the studio with us and then going, you know, going out for a drink with them and then meeting up with Iggy Pop and it was some mad times and I was still quite young. So, you know, and then um, I met my future wife in 1988 and uh and things were sort of coming to a head with BAD about, you know, who's, you know, getting our involvement more respected. <laughs> I'll say the, say the juicy details from my book. <laughs> but, um, and then my, my wife had uh, got pregnant and then uh, kind of felt like I was pulling away from the band. So, you know, me, me and Don and Leo split to form the Screaming Target. So, uh, and that's, you know, starting to look more at being more independent and then follow my own musical path. Yes, absolutely. Oh. Screaming Target then. Was that, um, so was that, did that feel like a big decision when Big Audio Dine might finish for you? Or was it at the time kind of inevitable? Did it feel like, yes, we've we've done it now, that's time to move on? It kind of did feel inevitable. When it when it came down, it came down to sort of business things as well, you know, like I, I actually 
I can't even talk about it really, but um, we felt that we, we, we could break away. And after being in that band for five, five, six years, we built up, built up our own musical knowledge. And um, there was a time on the third album when Mick was ill and he was in the hospital. So we were in the studio writing a lot of stuff together anyway. Um, and then Mick would come in and play his guitar over it. So, you know, and then actually one of the catalysts was um, in 1989, I got a small single deal with a small label to make a track which I did under the name of Mac One, uh, and it was called The Right Stuff. It's not it's not that great, you know what I mean? But it's, it's part of the steep learning curve, same as I, I look upon Screaming Target as a bit of a learning curve as well. Yes. How to sort of produce, produce your own record with your own sort of vision. And Mac One came out. And, and Mac One you... came out. It's like, please don't dig it up. It's just, it's just awful. I think we spent more t- time on worrying about what the cover looked like. And uh, but it was me like breaking away, and and you know exploring. I had started to do other productions for different people at the, at the sort of tail end of Big Audio Dynamite. I did a hip hop artist called MC Brooklyn. I worked with a singer called Catherine Buchanan. I was starting to do remix. I did a remix for Big Audio Dynamite, just play music. I did my own remix, which made me think, wow, this is really good. And I was, you know, that set me on the path to uh, just wanting to do my own stuff and and having stuff, my own sort of set up at home, little four track set recorder and a drum machine, keyboard and a sampler. I was starting to put my own tracks together. So and uh, the sampling thing was like a big opening for me, you know, because when we first started sampling stuff with BAD and I was like, this is amazing. And then I'd hear something and think that would make a good sample. So I started to collate tapes, cassette tapes with all these different snippets. And then when you're on tour in America, I had my beatbox with me and I record stuff off the radio, which has provided me with, you know, so many different samples, spoken voice and stuff like that. And then when that started to come in, I started to, to make that tapes of samples. I've got a whole kind of, you know, loads of that tapes full of samples. So sampling is the key for me. If I weren't, you know, if I hadn't sampled certain things, you know, I probably wouldn't have the kind of career. No. So with your with Scream and Target then, which was taken from Big Youth, was that you did one album on Island Records? Were you surprised that you didn't sort of continue that through the 90s? Uh, yeah, kind of in a way, but we were lucky because we left BAD and we started to work in Ireland Studios because Don knew everybody at Ireland. The Suzette Newman, who was kind of Chris Blackwell's right-hand woman, she was looking after us and then they they put us on Mango, which is a subsidiary of Ireland. And the the A&R guy there was a guy called Jumbo, who sadly passed away. So we were given a deal without having to make anything. We were like, and we made a bunch of, you know, we recorded a bunch of demos in the the island writing rooms, which is, I don't know if they're still there, but in Hammersmith. We did six weeks in there and we had all these different things that were like, okay, great, great. And that's, that's where... 
the fortunate meeting of Tim Bran, who I started Dreadzone with. He came over from Guernsey and he had he got a job with Island Records working. And his first job was like, okay, you're working with these guys. They're writing stuff in there, and there used to be big audio dynamite. He's like, oh, great. And Tim Tim Bram was just amazing. He'd sit there and and he knew he knew what was what. We'd ask him to make a cup of tea, and he'd be like, really, have I make tea? <laughs> but um, that's where uh, I met Tim. And then we started to hang out, and he did some sound live sound for Screaming Target, and then he ended up mixing one of the tracks on on the album Who Killed King Tubby. And then we just started hanging out as friends and really became a really one of my best mates. And he used to come around and I'd play him ideas. And kind of that's where the uh, the, the beginning of Dreadzone was after we, uh, we didn't continue with the Screaming Target thing because we made one record and it didn't sell and we'd spent a lot of money. So we got dropped by Island. So we got a new manager and we tried to write some new stuff but it wasn't really going anywhere. And so at the same time, I'm writing new stuff on my own. Um, and that's how sort of Dreadzone. Yes. And, and they, they got picked up by Creation Records, which is quite an unusual label for Dreadzone, I would have thought. It was, yeah. So um, I'd just done a few demos and I had a friend that come around, a French French friend, a friend who, who was managing Screaming Target. And uh, and I, I, Luke Vergier, a very good friend, worked for Sony Records. And he came around, he heard these demos and he was like, oh, yeah, let me introduce you to a few people. So I went to a publisher. The publisher introduced me to this guy from Adam from Wow Mr. Modo, which was the Orbs label. Um, um yes and we went in the studio and we were going to write we were going to record some stuff we recorded some stuff that was going to come out and wow mr modo and then they ran out of money they didn't have any money so they couldn't afford to pay the studio bill so i went off on holiday and then when i came back at the beginning of the year uh he this guy luke vergier he'd gone to japan with uh alan mcgee to see Primal Scream at the Budokan. Right, yeah. And they're on the way to the gig in this limo, and he pops in this cassette, and he plays it to Alan McGee, and he's like, yeah, I like it, I'll sign them. You know, just three, I think it was three or four songs. So that, you know, that whole chance thing of, like, him playing it to, to, to Alan McGee. So when I came back from holiday, we were... There was a deal with Creation waiting for us. And by then we sort of had an album, you know, an album's worth of stuff. So they paid for us to go into a studio in March 93 where we recorded first Dreadzone album. Yes. And it was a kind of a perfect time because from memory, there was that kind of real festival movement, wasn't there, happening with people like the Levelers and Sensor and just kind of, um, I suppose there was that wonder stuff Wonder stuff. Yes, that's it. And you know, there was a sort of and Dread Zone has a sort of a soundtrack that is very good for sort of dancing to, hasn't it? And and sort of raving and sort of yes, being at a festival, listening to Dread Zone. You did sort of pick up that zeitgeist. It seems like yeah, because we what we'd learned what we learned in Big Audio Dynamite, and then from Screaming Target, and then we realised that like, we didn't have to have all the all the vocals and the songs. You didn't have to think about songs. 
So I was very much, I was much more excited about the dance movement like in the early 90s because it started to pick up and it started to progress. You had people like Leftfield or, or whoever and they started to do more interesting things instead of just like acid house tracks. You know, not there's nothing wrong with acid house or any of that, but it started to progress a lot more, the orbital and people like that. And so we had that, we had the fusion of that we we sort of carried on the dub stuff from Big Audio Done right through into Screaming Target, which we expanded on. So to have that dub element mixed with the dance, the kind of the new sort of energy of dance, and because back then it was just house and techno, really. It was just those, you know, Chicago and Detroit. And then what people were doing with it in England. So mixing the dub with the dance and then using a lot of samples, film samples and, and electronic keyboards and having a lot more space to be able to, uh, to create. Um, that, yeah, that created our own particular sound, which kind of seemed to chime with, like you say, what was going on with the, the festivals. We didn't do our f first festival until... 1994 but when we did it was Glastonbury on the pyramid stage and John Peel was there at the side of the stage and he was blown away by it and yes uh, dear old Mr Peel but um yeah it's, it's signing with creation was great and our first agent was Alex Nightingale who's the son of Annie Nightingale so he was the one that he was looking after the orb as well so our second only show was this amazing thing in Denmark called the Trekrunner Festival with uh, the Orb at Sunset, Dread Zone, System 7, Paul Daly from Leftfield, Darren Emerson from Underworld, and then the Orb at Sunrise. It was just this amazing like show, like a mile out to sea in, in Copenhagen Harbour on a floating stage. So Alex Nightingale was our agent. So we were getting these great opportunities. And next thing you know, Annie Nightingale, rest in, you know, rest in peace. She only just passed away. I always remember she phoned me up at home and I got this phone call from Annie Nightingale going, I really have heard your album and I really like it. So that was a real buzz. So yeah, everything started to pick up from there. That And we had that kind of nice underground thing going on with the uh, creation yes and um i mean it was kind of i mean it was kind of strange because the 80s was very sort of dominated by thatcher then the sort of 90s come in and there's this sort of economic uptime during the john major years which obviously new labor really sort of you know capitalize on in a way but then but you sort of there is this sense of slight another I mean, but I remember the sort of 80s and it was quite grim, really. The, the festival scene had become quite grubby and there was the the travellers or the the convoy that used to be a bit sort of destructive. And then suddenly the festivals seemed to be a little bit nicer. You know, they were still wild and a bit out there, but they didn't have that kind of sense of Mad Max in them. And then, and then sort of soundtracks like um, Dread Zone sort of fitted in alongside people, like I mentioned before, there was just a sort of a new generation who were kind of entering that world of kind of uh, the three-day festival. Yeah, I think they were called, there was a movement, it was like Krusties, I think. Krusties, that's the yeah, one. Yeah, there were those kind of bands and Ned's Atomic Dustbin and 
the, the levelers and, uh, you know, all that, that festival vibe. But yeah, we came along just the right time to, to, to capitalize on that. I think what helped us as well with the dance music thing that set us apart was because we played as a rhythm section from Big Audio Dynamite, we were able to play live along with the technology. You know, it was obviously fraught with like, you always think something's going to go wrong because you had to run these machines while you're playing. So it's the same, still the same these days. We use laptops and that, but you're always worried that the technology is going to break down. <laughs> but the fact that we had the live drummer and the live bass player mixed with the electronics made for a very unique sound. There wasn't a lot of people doing that. There was, you know, it was uh, obviously a lot, just much more techno-based. Yeah, so I think there was there was a few people. I think that Petrol and Motion used to try and play with a certain some sort of different ideas, didn't they? But you did, um, which were quite big decision. They 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 sampled something from was it Bro- Brother D and the Collective Effort? They had a sort of a chorus they used. How are we going to make the Black Nation rise or something like that? There was a there was a bit of a dance thing happening during the nineties that would that would started in the eighties. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, where we fit in the, to the, I don't know. There's um, there's so many elements going on there, but um, yeah, we. Uh, but you did two John Peel sessions quite early on, didn't you? Which is always a sort of a is almost a little blessing, really, isn't it? When you get the Peel sessions. Yeah, we did a John Peel actually. Yeah, because when John Peel saw us, he did offer us a Peel session, but he, we had already done one which was while we were still like, because we did Dread Zone, the first album, 360s, just me and Tim, basically. Because when I moved on from Screaming Target, I realized I needed to push my own vision of how it was going to be. And obviously mix, mixing that with what Tim wanted to do was, it, it was just a duo. So when we signed with Creation, it was just, me and Tim, and we went in and made 360. So when we had to play it live, went to Leo. Okay, do you want to do you want to play bass? And then Dan Donovan, who who played keyboards with Bad, we got him to join. So people think we just came straight from Big Audio Dynamite, you know. And but you know, when it comes to something like Dread Zone, we'd already tried to do something with Screaming Target. And I felt that I had to take control of of what we were going to do. And it was just sitting at home. I was kind of desperate for a while. You know, after Screaming Target was dropped, I had to go and sign on again. You know, and I had a kid. We were living in Lancaster Road in uh, West 10. And I had to go and sign on again. And I was like doing all this music. I was trying to do adverts. I was trying to do all these different productions. I worked with Ari Up. Uh, Dom put me in touch with Ari from the Slits. Yes. And we did some tracks together. That didn't work out. And uh, it's just from the perseverance of doing, right, keep writing your own stuff, merge the reggae and the dub with the dance. You know, I have my MPC 60, which I've still got at home, my sampling drum machine and a sampler and my rolling keyboards. And... Um, 
you know, you just had to create something that you, you know, that you were in charge of, really. You had to take control, like Mick took control of bad. So that's what I did, you know. Yes. And, um, was, it we... was it difficult to follow up for the third album, Biological Radio? Was that, was that quite you a... You jumped second light now all of a sudden. <laughs> Sorry, second you line. From... No, because obviously, uh... so um, how long is this going on for? Is it a 90-minute one? Well, possibly, yes, yes. Uh, yes, that's fine. <laughs> well, you can edit it down to an hour. You edit it out. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. No, it's interesting, you know, the second album, because this is this is when it really, the planets line up, don't they? Everything yeah, yeah, the planets good. really do line up. Obviously, it's like... Um, it's all started to pick up with 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 creation and doing all the gigs, and we took on a management. <coughs> and then all of a sudden, um, creation found Oasis, and they started to spend all their time doing that. And our this management said, "Let's take you off creation. Why don't you just go and do do your own thing." work on the next album and then we'll get you a deal so it's very fortunate that i had a great publisher at the time at the same time as getting 360 out we had a great i had a good publishing deal with bmg and my publisher a really great friend at the time said look i'll give you 10 grand which is recoupable go and make the album so we went and made second light without being signed to anybody. It was funded by the publisher. By then we were Tim, me, Leo. Dan didn't really want to sort of carry on, so he's not really on Second Light. And then we met Earl. So we made Second Light in uh, Queen's Park in a studio. And then we we took it to a, somebody who I knew from the past as well, who, who'd originally given me my singles deal while I was still in bad this guy called Paul Kinder now worked for Virgin Records mm. and uh, we had this um, showcase we did a little show at Shepherd's Bush Empire but oh just on the stage with a small amount of people and we played live and we and then we were offered a deal by Virgin funny enough we were really good friends as well with Paul Oakenfold at the same time and he had his own label uh, out of um, an office in Kensington, which was a subsidiary of a big label. Anyway, he, Paul Oakenfold wanted to sign us as well, but Paul Kinder, their, their offer was better, and it was Virgin Records, for God's sake. And uh, and we, we did a deal, and we, we got our advance. You know, we'd already paid for the album, and we signed to Virgin, and... Put out as I you see Paul Oakenfold. He said, What I want to do is I want to put out Captain Dread first and I'll do a remix of it. So we never never know what that how that would have turned out. But as it was, we signed to Virgin, we did Zion Youth as the first single, and then we did Captain Dread, and then we did Little Britain as the third single, and we wrote a song to go over the top of it because Zion Youth had sort of nudge the charts they were like you really need a song there's little britain on the album if you listen to it it's just an instrumental yes 
So uh, we had to sit down and write a song in this green and pleasant land, you know, which was was came quite easily. And Earl sung it, and we did the single version, and it got into the charts, and we got to number twenty, got on top of the pops, and stayed at number twenty for a few weeks, and that really spurred the album on. So yeah, we played Glastonbury '95, we played uh, the pyramid, uh, not the pyramid. That year we played the enemy stage and then we did the dance tent on the Sundays. And everywhere you went, you could hear Second Night coming out of people's cars and vans. And it was just like, and they were showing the Zion Youth video on the screen between acts on the pyramid stage. So it was like, yeah, we've arrived. So Second Night was uh, big, 95. It's great. Yes. They have that. And then, but then obviously, like, as you say, with the third album, we're like, yeah, you can do what you want. So we uh, spent too much money in studios <coughs> and had to come up with a follow-up quite quickly. Uh, whereas Second Light had gestated for a few years from Screaming Target, you know, some different songs which I had sort of buried away. So we had to write a follow-up album really quick and it didn't sell as much. So, um, yeah, Biological Radio. And, but in retrospect, a lot of people still like that album. So I, yes. you know, it kind of, it was, uh, it was a bit rushed and we should have just maybe took the money and just built a studio. And, but as it was, we, we were like, let's go into the country and set up in this host house and take mushrooms and and also another thing that Tim Brand wasn't involved with the third album. He he'd been offered this thing, like an internet startup called Res Rocket Surfer, which was which was exploring making music over the internet. Right. Um, there was a lot of money involved, and and he didn't like being on the road. Tim hated touring, so. Um, yeah. What was it like keeping the team together? Did you find that quite a responsibility? Yeah, I did. In retrospect, you know, we had, I mean, for the, we had a bit of success and it probably might have gone to like, because everything had gone to plan. It was like, oh, brilliant. This is working. This is great. And so uh, there was probably a little bit of friction, as with all bands. But, uh, yeah, we made the third album, then we got dropped by Virgin. So it had to uh, kind of regroup and just rethink. So, yeah, 1998, we started a club night, started making more dance orientated. I think with Biological Radio, I was trying to follow up Second Light with the same kind of, some of the same themes, but getting a bit more esoterical and worrying about the subject matters, you know, aliens and angels and the planet and climate and whatever. It was uh, it's a classic move. <laughs> and also, I suppose we were also creeping up to the millennium and the millennium bug, and there was this kind of sense of, wow, this is incredible. We're, we're, we're sort of ending this kind of century, aren't we? We're sort of moving into another whole different we felt like it was you know now it seems a bit ridiculous but at the time there did seem a sort of sense of something ending and we'd had new labor for a few years which felt very optimistic and happy and we were 
partying and it was all good, but then things started to go rather sour, didn't it? So, um, yes, yeah, existential. We got, we, we got carried away with that. We all thought, you know, like obviously after years of Tories, you know, we notoriously dropped a John Major's resignation speech into Fight the Power at Glastonbury 95, which is which recorded, which is on the bonus CD on the re-release of Second Life. So, uh, yeah, and we kind of got, you know, doing Fight the Power and then going, you know, and the whole thing's like the criminal justice bill that was trying to outlaw dance music and raves. We kind of got involved more politically, which, which kind of, I don't know, it sets you back because it gets you typecast as this kind of a political band, which we weren't really coming from the background of Big Audio Dynamite. We were like, you know, I've learned since then, you know, like if you have anything to say, a bit, a bit more subtle about it. So, <laughs> And did I, you get to meet Gary Asquith as well from Renegade Soundwave? Did you? Because you met... Meet- Danny from Renegade Sound. I met Dan- Renegade Soundwave at festivals in the 90s and I got to know Danny very well. And Danny's like one of my best friends. He was around here the other day playing me some new music. And It's just kind of interesting because there's been a bit of interest last year. Someone made a film about a, 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 a sort of a band called Re- um, Rima Rima and um, it, it had people like Marco Peroni in it. Gary Asquith and various other people who all formed bands that were part of, um, were on 4AD records, as well as Dorothy Max Pryor, who was on drums, who had been in Throbbing Gristle. So it was just interesting that, you know, that was where a lot of them started in Rima Rima. They lasted eight months and then... I don't know that name. I know 4AD. I know somebody who used to work, Howard Goff, who used to work for 4AD, and and he's the one who played me, because they had colour box. Oh yes, God! They loved the colour box. When I was in the in the eighties, nineteen eighty seven, I got given this tape by this guy, and he was like, "Listen to this. It's called Mars, and it was like pump up the volume without all the extra samples in it." But that that's that's kind. Of, there is that dance, you know. There's that element of dance music crossover in lots of indie. And rock and roll. Is it an Augustus Pablo song they cover? Isn't it? I think which is um. Yeah, baby, I love you so. Yeah, yeah. What a classic! And Sky one horse, the um, spaghetti western. Yes. Thing. So, so then recording your fourth album, Sound. This is on a new record label, isn't it? Yeah, we had to regroup. So what I did, um, I sort of reconnected with Tim, and I had a studio next door to him on Kensal Road, and I had. A- little office there and I was going to you know I was going to start a label and I was going to do this and I was going to do that I never did the label comes much years later but I um I started a club night so that I could focus more on DJing and finding some some new outlets there and plus there was this there's music that started to happen with the you know we started this club night called Dubweiser which was kind of like Anything related to dub, but with offshoots, like, so you'd have breakbeat, you know, like people like the freestylers or or dub house or, you know, the early parts of uh, drum and bass and jungle, which was very dub and reggae influence. Or just, you know, we had guest DJs would be like Man Professor, Alex from the Orb, Don Letts. And me and Danny from Renegade were like the... Um, 
with the resident DJs. And that was this a bit was was this a little bit of a concept like Jazzy B had for Soul to Soul? Did you feel probably? You needed... But it was it was uh, once a month at a Nottingham Arts Club, so it was like it was a chance for us to get together and socialize and and you know have people come along. You know, one one time was uh, I was there playing one of the early days, and I was playing this record, and I played another record, and this guy standing there went, "Those those records you just played, they're all on my different labels." And one of the labels he ran was this thing out of Camden called Finger Licking, which is kind of like a funk breakbeat label. So we ended up hooking up with them, doing a remix for Finger Licking. They did a remix for us, and. You know, that's the freestylers, that kind of thing where breakbeat and ska reggae was kind of crossing over. And we start. I used to go out looking for all the records that kind of had dub and reggae influences. And, you know, it was just it was a nice energy to have the club night. So. I'm gone in a roundabout way to say that that kind of fed into what we were doing with sound. It was kind of like we were straight to a soundboard. We went back to the dance floor. You know, we got away from all that, all that kind of hippie nonsense on biological radio, you know, aliens and angels. And all <laughs> Ley lines and pyramids. Yeah, yeah. And all that, all that kind of stuff. Biological radio itself is kind of like an Aldous Huxley kind of thing. But you know, we all tuned in to the same thing. So, oh, you know, with sound, it was kind of like straight back to the the dance floor. Um, and there's some good songs on it. And it's me and Tim, you know, me and Tim in the studio, really. You know, and I think after after three, six, after the second night, it's that it's my favorite second album. Yes. And you get and you get Brinsley Ford from Aswad. Brinsley came in. It was the first time that Spee, I'd in, been introduced to Spee. He used to come down the club and sort of do some MCing. So it's he, his first track. And it samples things like Papa Levi. And it samples the Chiefs of Relief, who used to tour with Big Audio Dynamite back in the 80s. And they used to do this song, We Got the Freedom to Rock. Was that, a... was that and, Paul Cook's uh, band? Paul Cook's band, yeah. Uh, Matthew Ashman, who sadly passed away. Um, so stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, Don Letts co-wrote some lyrics on Digital Mastermind and, and Different Planets. And uh, all in all, a very and we had, our, we had time to work on it, you know, from 98 through to 2001. And the label it came out on is our good friend Luke Vergier, who, who played our tape to Alan McGee in Japan. He had a label called Rough Life, which was like an offshoot of Sony, I think, doing like American hip hop acts mainly. <coughs> I don't think he had any English acts. Um, and he was like, yeah, you do you do the record. He was such a lovely guy because years later, he was like, yeah, you can have that album. It's your album. No, you know, no contracts and, you know, one of the best people I know in the business. Amazing. People like that, you know. So, yes. yeah, making the sound, it was very simple as well. And we went to Don, it's like, oh, we're looking for a title for this album. And he was sound. I was like, okay. And we've got, 
And the artwork as well is very much, there was a lot of stuff springing up around West London that was Banksy doing that, the ape on the wall and, and stencil stuff. So the, the, the cover is a reflection of that kind of art that was happening at the time with the stencil, it was done. Yes. So it all, uh, yeah, it all, all did really well. But then, you're, but then you're after that comes out, there's a bit of a gap and there's a massive kind of change in lineup, isn't there? Yeah. Is there a, it does everything got change had, at this stage? We had, um, me and Tim had a studio together and we made sound. And, and then we had to take it on the road. So Tim was like, well, I'm not coming on the road. And then we met somebody, I'd met, already met this other guy, Ben, Ben Balafonic, who did the same thing as Mick. Uh, Tim, he was mixing and that, and they swapped desks in the studio and he moved into the studio and, and then became our kind of guy. But then, yeah, we did have a lull. There was a lull where sound had been, you know, it'd been out and then that was gone. And then we, we did like a load of remixes and production for different people. And then we didn't know where to take it really and then uh you can cut this bit out but uh, this this new guy did have this new guy grew up with the whole rave thing we were talking about with ecstasy but uh, you should cut this out he he he's from that generation that was very young and taking ecstasy and then when you don't take ecstasy you replace it with cocaine so he was a bit of a heavy cocaine user, which kind of fed into the next album. So, but I, I'd suggest you to. Oh, I yes. I allude to that on, on the sleeve notes of the re-release of Once Upon a Time. And even Ben was like messaging me, why are you putting all that? It's like, I don't know if I want to talk about that. No. Yes. Okay. I'll remember that. Oh, so so uh, yeah, there was a, a period there where we um, well, we didn't have a deal, um, and uh, obviously the club night wasn't happening anymore. But what we had was this thing called Dread Zone Sound System, where we'd go out because we'd be going out. I'd be going out and DJing and that, but with Spee on the mic, and then Ben now as two DJs, we'd go out and do a lot of Dread Zone Sound System shows. And then we even did a stripped down version of our live show where there was me and Ben, Spee and Earl and the sound man. And we all drive around to do these festivals in a little people carrier and no drums, you know, yes. me, me on a pad. And uh, we did that for a while for, for one year. But um, we realized we had to, you know, because when I started working with Ben, we were like, OK, it's got to be something else now because he was very much. A producer in his own right and he was like let's do a new project i don't see why it should be dread zone so we did this thing called mafia tone for a little while but then we realized that we had to you know dread zone is a good name there's a lot of love out there <coughs> so we had this guy um another old friend of ours biff mitchell who was he runs the glade stage at glastonbury he had a label called functional breakbeat label he offered to do release some records for us, and we did a a DJ um, Dreadzone Sound System DJ mix album, and then followed it up. We finally 
wrote enough stuff for, for an album, which my brother was, my late brother was involved quite a lot <coughs> playing guitar. So in the period between, um, this is a, something on my Dread Zone Facebook page, I've been doing, because last year was 30 years of Dread, I've been doing all the history and then, do, and I, I explored that period as well. There was a few years where we didn't really do much as Dread Zone, but we came back together. We got this release out on Functional Records once upon a time. And it was all going great. And we were out there touring, maybe getting a bit too uh, carried away with the partying as well. And uh, 2006, things, we got a bit, you know, everyone was getting a bit like, you know, irritable with each other with all the sort of hedonistic lifestyle and uh, Ben left and then in October of that year my brother took his own life so it all fell apart so yes geez and your other guitarist which is called Steve Roberts, Steve Roberts that... that's my brother yeah and then he he took his own life and uh, um, we we uh, had to go away for a while and see what we were going to do and we we came back, auditioned a new guitarist, found a new guy to do the, the all the technology with the laptop and the mixing on stage, and uh, found new management, which is um, a DMF. Was probably one of the best things ever. It's kind of like say management. It's like they started out as her agent, then they became a manager, and then they became the like partner in the record label dmf they they look after the levelers and lots of different acts right they, they run the beautiful days festival for the levelers so they got involved and we we started our own label um with them dave dave and laura farrow they're really you know best friends and, and this is dubweiser this is the label we started the label Dubwise at the end of like say the two thousand and nine, and um, with the new with the new act with Chris Compton on guitar, Chris Oldfield, and Leo and Speed and Earl and myself, we got together and we uh, wrote a new album, uh, Iron the Horizon, and that came out on our own label in two thousand and ten. And then brings us, and we were doing really well. And all of a sudden, we get the offer to reform Big Audio Dynamite in 2011. <laughs> so yeah. That brings us full circle back to. Uh... And did you, and did I remember when um, listening to a documentary about with the police and they, they did, they reformed because obviously there was a lot of money on the table and um, they realized that there were three members. Everybody around them was loving it, apart from two of the members of the band, and they had to sort of have band therapy to try and sort out some issues to continue the tour, so they could all get their paychecks. What What was it like with um, Big Audio Dynamite? Well, uh, this time this time around, we started our own sort of Big Audio Dynamite reunion company kind of thing, and um, our agent was Simon Moran. Who's kind of looking, looking after us and putting? Yeah, he he's quite a big name in the business. He looks after. I think he used to look after people like Take That. And he was a top manager. 
And the, a lot of this stemmed from this guy um, in America, Jerry Harrington, who used to be Joe Strummer's manager. He because the the year previously, like when we're doing Eye on the Rise and Mix out on the road with the Gorillas. So Mick and Paul Simonon. So Mick got a taste of playing live again, and uh, got meeting Jerry Harrington in America. And he, Jerry Harrington was like, yeah, if you put the band back together, we can get Coachella and we can get you Lollapalooza. And um, so we got back together and, and, you know, with all good intentions, we had, uh, like I say, Coachella playing in LA, playing in New York, doing an English tour and doing a lot of festivals. So 2011 was a complete rush, really, to, to be able to come back to Big Audio Dynamite after, you know, forging our own way and making some some considerable success, I think, with Dread Zone. To come back and then to be able to enjoy that that level of, uh, of gigs and response. With a with a bit more of a you know because it was all a bit of a blur and a rush in the eighties. Yes. So it was yeah, and it was incredibly enjoyable. Um, yeah, there were so many things going on, but uh, it didn't go beyond the one year. So there you go. What was your highlight of all those festivals that you played in the UK and America? I would say coach playing at Coachella, Lollapalooza. Uh, we played the Exit Festival in Serbia. I don't know. Some of the, um, I think the highlight of the tour would have been playing two nights at uh, Shepherd's Bush Empire. Sold out. You know, I was watching a bit of that the other night. There's uh, somebody recorded it all from the balcony, and it's, you know, the great shows. Everybody's singing along from the beginning from Medicine Show, and uh, there's great energy. So it was worth doing. And, um, I've, you know, I've been writing a blog since 2010 or, or before. So I wrote, you know, there's a lot of that on my WordPress page about what it was like. Yes, my God. But uh, yeah, and it was, it, was in, it was incredibly good. And then, um, but it didn't go any further. The, Mick, the next year was doing this um, Justice tour with Pete Wiley and the farm, you know, for the... Um, the 92 yes and he was involved in that and he didn't seem to want to write anything new also you know halfway through the bad tour dan was doing a few funny things so we had to replace him so it wasn't the best of times for mick mick was probably wondering why the fuck am i doing this so <laughs> but we were all having a good time, you know, and it was it was a it was good to break up the dread zone thing to suddenly go off and do big audio dynamite. So we gave the impetus to come back and we were using Mick's studio because Mick had this studio in Acton, which he had for years, the bunker. And we um we used to rehearse there and then we 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 went back in and uh we re we recorded this um we had the energy to write a new album, Escapades, which got Mick Jones on on one track. And uh, some of it, you know, it's quite an eclectic album. There's quite a lot of guitar in there as well. 
so uh so the energy and the and the, and the inspiration we took from the bad tour was channeled into the next dread zone album escapades um yeah which did okay and then uh, uh, yes did you did you tour that particular album yeah we've always been taught and the thing is when you look back on having the agency that we have we've got this thing where you know every year maybe it's different this year maybe you know some years are a bit less than others but we've got a set of spring dates that we do and then we've got the festivals and then we do an autumn tour so there's the demand out there and then we can sell the certain shows some of them would sell out so yeah we toured escapades we did a video for too late which had mick jones in um there's yeah there's some great good tracks on escapades i think it's it's it, it worked really well but and then, did you uh, did you enjoy having your own record label at this stage was that sort of quite a interesting learning curve um yeah of course do you know what i mean you don't have to um it's great to be able to have the the funds there you know to be able to afford it but yeah, it's 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 a buzz, and you and you get to expand the vision of the band and be able to, you know, have the right artwork. We started working with this guy, Glass Siren, who did the the, the cover for Escapades. Uh, he worked out of Leeds. A guy's called Damon Roberts. I've never actually met him. We've been working for ten years. So he did the label, the, the label logo, the star. Yeah. He did the cover of Escapades kind of a blend of love and revolution and sort of semi sort of Russian art. And so, um, yeah, it's great to be able to have the kind of art you want and um, shape the albums how you want and have remixes done. But, you know, times change. So maybe remixes don't have the kind of currency they, they used to have. And videos, you know, don't get made so much anymore. No, no. Because then then you'll, the last album you recorded, Dread Times, this was about six years ago, seven years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a time back now, 2017. We released it. You know, once we start, you know, once we finished sort of touring escapades, we started writing new stuff. And by this time, like even with Iron Horizon, even though we had the new band, I had my younger son, my, my older son, Marlon Roberts was playing keyboards with us. So he played on a few tracks on Iron the Rise, and then he had a bigger contribution on Escapades. And then by the time we've come to Dread Times, he's in the studio with us and he's helping not just with the keyboards, but like uh, here's a change here, you know, and he's he's very integral to the sound of Dread Times. And uh yeah, it's it's a very complete album, Dread Times, because we we're still working in mixed studio, and, and we're all together writing songs. And uh... so, following on from that, and that was very well, very well received. Um, so, following on from that, obviously we were going to start looking at new stuff, but then I'm working with Marlon a lot more, so I wanted to introduce an act where he's where he's got more of a control over what he's doing. So that's when the idea for Dubweiser Volume 1 came about, where I'd start introducing 
other people into like the dub the dread zone family so i don't know if you've got the dubweiser stuff if you know it no it's probably it's probably not so much on spotify because it's different artists and even on wikipedia they don't even basically we had this thing dubweiser volume one where we've got different artists we've got this Submantra, Professor Skank, Luchi Luamichi One, Basil, who's in the band. Oh yeah, well let's let's not forget that he's gonna hate me for saying that um after the BAD tour, we didn't have uh, Chris Oldfield working with us anymore. So we had Basil joined us in uh, for Escapades album. So he's been with us ever since 2012. Uh, he's a he's an artist in his own right. He does drum and bass. So uh, anyway, I don't know why it's it's not up there. I was looking at Spotify the other day. It's it's Dubwise uh, of Volume One. It's it's a kind of like there's a couple of Dread Zone tracks on it. Um, and it's it's introducing new acts onto the Dubwise Dubwise label and then expanding the label. Where are you looking? Yes, well, I'm looking at discography here on on your Dub Dubwiser Volume One and Volume Two here, and just seen your yeah, track yeah, list. Okay. So, so that's the thing. The worrying thing on Wikipedia is the last thing we did with Dread, was Dread Time. So, in the meantime, we've done. I wanted to introduce, and they've done quite well, actually. You know, like they were. Um, my label partners were a bit skeptical, but. Um, I just I wanted to expand the labels so so we bring new artists in so it's not just Dread Zone you know because that's you know Dread Zone's not going to last forever and so Dub Words of Volume One we released and then we started working on a new album and then 2020 happened so yes <clears throat> so the pandemic put a halt to everything so I thought what's the point of working on this album? We'd already started writing some stuff in 2019. So I was like, what's the point of doing it if we can't go out and tour? So I started working on another, we were working more remotely with different people. So I wanted to do Dubwise of Volume 2. And I'd started working with this person, Emily Capel. Oh, yes. Um, and then Gaudi. And then there was a, a band that did a version of Site CMC, which was a big audio dynamite track, which I remixed, which I we we ended up licensing to be the first track on the album. So it, even though it seems like we haven't done anything since Dread Times, we've actually done two compilation albums, and then we did a a, re, a release rare mixes, which is older tracks from around the three sixty period. And um, what else did we do? Anyway, we're working on it, which is our ninth album now. Um, and it's taking quite a time because <coughs> out the Spee, who was singing with us, kind of opted to step back from the live touring uh, last year. 2020, was it last year? 2023? No, it was 2022. He's, he stepped back. So we had to reinvent the live show a bit. Yes. 
taking up a lot of time. So, and then we last year we started mixing the final tracks for the album, and that's taken it's taken far too long. But a new album from Dread Zone, which will be our ninth release, official artist album, <coughs> will be out this year. Excellent. Are we with come a full circle? And I've, like, I'm getting. Yes. Did you ever have a much of a crossover with people like the Afro-Celt sound system? You know, because I just sometimes, I know I shouldn't say it, but kind of slightly associate the two, you know. Yeah, bands. that eclectic thing. Um, I, well, I do know them guys. One of them sadly passed away, I think. Simon sadly died, Simon Booth. Yeah, um, I don't really have that much contact with them, but... Um, yeah, they are similar styles. Well, uh, yes, they just had a, a kind of a collective vibe, didn't they? Which had a, a musicality that sort of mined down into different, different genres and different, um, yes, yeah avenues. So I I don't know what um, I don't know how to uh, present this new album. But it's it's got L sixteen on it. There are a couple of tracks to spear. I don't want to give too much away actually because I'm not. People know that we're working on a new album, and everybody's like, "Come on, when's your next album? Your last one was like." Actually, nobody's really said that. I always think that it, people are going, "No, wait, come on!" But we've done Dubwiser one and Dubwiser volume two, which for me, I collated all the Dread Zone tracks. And the uh, collaborations on that onto one uh, playlist on Spotify, and I called it Eight and a Half after Fellini's Eight and a Half. But yes, not it's not album eight, and it's not album nine. It's kind of like it's all the Dread Zone stuff, and there's like eight tracks on it actually, um, and that's on Spotify somewhere. I think I did the playlist, so. We haven't been like just sitting around doing nothing. We have done, we have done uh, a lot of new music, and you know, I like I say, like in lockdown, I got to know this girl Emily Capel. We did this wonderful track together, Flamingo, which is about the Christine Keeler story, and then we wrote this track together called Dreadtown, which is, which was a single, from Dubwise Volume Two, and we did a video which was directed by Don Letts, so that's worth a watch. Yes. So I'm very pleased with that. And she's her art. She was an artist in her own right. And she started to work on her second album, but she's kind of given it up for a while. So I don't know what, what's happening with her, but it, it was exciting to work with someone like that, a singer, you know, guest singers. Uh, all the time I want to expand out and then, because I, I think it was quite closed dread zone over the years and then these the, having your own label and having a compilation and having the freedom to be able to bring in different people it, it, it's made me much more open to collaborations and um you know one of the interesting things that made me want to do that as well not apart from having my own son who was technically good enough to to write his own stuff is i was spending a lot of time in crete um, with friends, I've got friends over there, a guy called Professor Skank, who's like a reggae and dub producer in uh, Crete. He invited us over 10 years ago 
uh, to play this festival that he does out there, the Reggae Vibes Festival. And me and Spee and Earl went, and we got to know him. And because it's so nice there, and he knows all the good restaurants, and I've got friends there, I go back there every year. So I went last September, and it's like the 11th time I've been there. It's like, but it's really great because he's, um, so he's done, he did three tracks with us on Dubwise Volume 2 and he did three tracks on uh, Dubwise Volume 1 as well. So, um, yeah, uh, Crete, Crete, well, we've got a track called Crete and Skank. And uh, if you listen to Dubwise Volume 1, there's quite a lot of sunny tracks on there. So that kind of time spent in that place has soaked into the music. Yes. And did you, I mean, you toured at the end of last year, which was probably, had you done many tours this decade or was that the first kind of big one after the lockdown? No, we've been touring every year, really. Yeah, it was just a bit more tricky. It takes up a lot of time. So like when in 2022, Speed decided that he didn't want to sing anymore and and he had caught COVID, he lost his voice. He was in bad shape health-wise and... He just needed to step back from Dread Zone for a while. So we had to kind of rethink the live thing. So we had to bring in some older tracks and some different tracks. And and actually preparing those things take up a lot of time. <coughs> so, um, yeah, that's why we've, we've been touring. Yeah, last year was our 30th year of Dread Zone. So we did uh, an extensive tour running from September, October, November, December, quite a lot of dates. Yes, absolutely. And did uh, are you finding new people discovering the band? Yes. Yes. People, you know, over the years you get people who come along and, oh, my, my parents used to play your music while I was going to sleep and stuff, stuff like that. And a lot of people who grown up, their parents liked the music and, People who happen to be at festival and they go, oh, oh, Dread Zone, okay, and check them out. And then, you you know, it's you can't help but be moved by the sort of groove that we have, you know, with our, uh, coming up, you know, it's 1984 to 2024. Now, it's 40 years I would have been playing with Leo as a rhythm section. So when you're hearing us live, that's what you're hearing. You're hearing like that, that, that 40-year history with us with the technology and good tunes. Yes, this is right. I, I think Picasso, was he doing some interview <laughs> once and he drew a little picture and someone said, God, that's a masterpiece. That took you five years. And he said, no, that was 60 years of my life. So it's probably the same thing, isn't it? I'm comparing you to I'm Picasso. Sorry, I've got, I'm talking too much. Particularly <laughs> <coughs> throat. Yes, well, it, it it does happen. No, I was just saying, um, you know, a little anecdote about Picasso scribbling something, and someone said that took you it took you five minutes, and he said, no, that was seventy years of work. That that yeah, little scribble. No, so you you do have that kind of um, ability. Plus, you were playing in the sort of seventies, so actually, you've probably got more like fifty years of experience. Probably, yeah. I don't know what. <coughs> 1974 yeah. was probably your playing drums. Yeah, I probably had 74, 76, I would have been 18. So, yeah, it was that kind of, it was that period of like all that early dance or going to clubs and then starting that band with my brother and 
yeah, I've learned a lot of stuff, picked up a lot of stuff on, along the way, but managed to create my own world, how I, you know, I was just talking about me. It sounds a bit me-centric. But... <laughs> and if you, and you, just lastly, if you could have whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out, is there any little words of wisdom or sort of hints or a little nudge that you would have said, oh, that would have been a good idea? No, I wouldn't. I uh, wouldn't. I wouldn't change too much. I mean, people say to you, "What do you? What do you? What advice do you have for young musicians?" I always say, "Stay away from cocaine." <laughs> the worst, you know what I mean? But um, yeah, because there was a, somebody else died last week of cocaine, and some comment from a slightly older person said, "Unless you know who." grew it or made it you know you're just risking your life on it so there you go no i don't i mean the thing is you know in my whole life yeah i started probably about 18 yeah i've probably been smoking weed since like for 50 years so i started probably when i was 18 smoking hash and then weed and like i always think that that's probably you know like makes me really reflective and you know maybe has helped me make the decisions I've made. I've not been a big, you know, I like my wine these days, but can't drink too much of it. But because I've got COPD now and I've got really a bit asthma related stuff. But um, yeah, um, marijuana has been a staple in my life. That's why, you know, I've got my little cake here. So. <laughs> and I've got some oil, which I'll have. and. Uh, but I don't know what I'd say. Yeah, I'd say stay away from coke. But, you know, I've had good times on that as well. So I've got no regrets, really. I mean, I'm in my late 60s. I feel, you know, I don't feel like I'm this age. And one I was wondering the other day, what's going to be like when we're 90? I mean, what am I going to be like? Just, I can't imagine that, me as... I don't feel old, you know what I mean? But I am, you know what I mean? I was born in the 50s. So I've yes. experienced the, the greatest arc of human, to me anyway, like post-war, all the way through, like all the best music and the best, you know, greatest culture and whatever, like through the technological revolution. And uh, yeah, if I had to say... I don't know, my 16-year-old self, I don't know. Anybody now, I'd say stay off the internet. <laughs> Stop looking at your phone. Yes, this is also true. This is true. Anyway, look, I'll let you, um, yes, I'll let you have a drink of water. But look, thank you ever so much for your time for this. This has been amazing. Is and, it going to um, be an hour long? Or is well, I, I might have a, an edited version because there was somebody, there's often people get in touch and say, oh, you should really get so-and-so. They would be brilliant to hear. And I, you know, and I go, well, you know, I know them. I'm not you, but I know the music. And I think, oh, yeah, that would be a great idea. So um, it was like oh, somebody. Thank you for taking the interest. I hope, I mean, that's why I'm always like, Really, because I I do interviews, and then sometimes I think, and I read them, and I go, or I hear them, and I think, why am I? Why did I say that? And I, so so it depends on how you feel at the time. Like, 
and how the conversation flows, really. But, um, you know, I suppose that's like anything. Like, you, know, you don't like the sound of your own voice. I don't like sometimes... Um, I'm sort of basically telling you my, that my life story in music there. Yes, this is true. Well, anyway, at least, least it's... Um, I hope it's been interesting. Enough. It's been amazing. No, and like I said, you know, I've just... I just... probably that's why I keep going round in that I'm keep going, oh yeah, let's recycle back on that bit because you know so, there's lots of like links, like oh, I met this person and then this, you know, this happened and then you suddenly remember this and yes, anyway. anyway. It was it was nice to remember your your tickets anyway. Like five yeah. pounds five pound C big audio dynamite. That's decent. That's quite decent, isn't it? And Six pound two years later, it's a bargain. Where were they in London? No, UEA Norwich. All right, is that where you are? Yeah. There you no, go. We, we were in Norwich at the um, Epic. Epic Epic Studios. Do you know the? Do you know Rick? Yes. Rick? Yeah. Yes. So um, he's not. He doesn't work with them anymore. Oh, isn't he? I, I, I don't follow. With, uh, I think with he's taking it to a different venue next time. Right. Oh, oh, well. Well, you didn't get to see us then? No, I did see a few gigs last year at Epic, but I didn't see Dread Zone, which was a bit unfortunate, but um, never mind. Was it a good vibe? Yeah, it was good. I mean, it's a very big venue. It's, uh, but we had about 400, 450 in there. So, yeah, it was a lot of people bouncing. Yes, it's got a bounce. There you go. Anyway, I so see you've got a few dates already lined up for the the summer, and then you'll have an autumn gig as well. Will you? Will you? Yeah, there's, there's. I don't think anything's gone on. When, when is this coming out? Probably oh, in a couple of weeks' time. Okay, because um, we've just they're going to be announced at the end of January anyway. We're just we're going to do uh, six shows with the orb co-headline excellent so that that's you know because we've just done 30th anniversary tour and it's like okay we've got to do something different now and then i was talking to my manager of like they're based in exeter and we were and i was like have you seen like suede are going out with manic street peaches and and so and so is going out with there there's all these double headline tours that people are doing i thought that sounds, sounds quite interesting we should do something with the orb and he was like oh what a great idea <laughs> Phone Alex because I, I know Alex really well so um <clears throat> so if this is not coming out for a while that's that's good because then they're yes. going to announce it in a couple uh next week I think actually. brilliant so you got six dates with the orb is that yeah, in the yeah. summer or no no it's uh March uh sorry it's April and May there's uh three one weekend and three the next and uh, they're decent sized revenues, but we're going to see how it works out. You know what I mean? Because we don't normally like on the um, UK tour that we just did. I just I do the DJing as well, so we we're not a big one for support bands. But it, it's going to be interesting to see how we do double headline. It's going to be we're going to play an hour each. So yes, that's going to so, be that's uh, fun times. Well, it's it it sounds like a perfect marriage, really. Yeah. Yes, it'll be good. Anyway, look, I'll let you get on, but thank you again for your time. This has been amazing. Yeah. Nice to talk to you, David. Thank you. And um 
I'll keep in touch. Enjoy the rest of the evening, and yeah, keep in touch. Let me know how it goes. And um, yes, if, 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 if I can send you a link. And that, dear listener, I know I had to stop it sometime. Anyway, look, a massive thank you, as always, to Greg Roberts. I think he goes as Greg Dredd as well. Forgive me the time for that interview. This has been the C86 show. I'm David Esau. Um, just to say that uh, Dread Zone does have a website that you can find out more information and dates and other bits and pieces. Um, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. All these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's a true story. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.